Good morning and welcome again to this Friday Chapel for Defender Days. We are glad that you are here. This is fun to see so many parents, grandparents, alumni, people who have been part of this community in a lot of different ways. When we gather on Wednesdays, we're very conscious of the fact that so many different denominations, so many different countries find their place, find their home here in this community, and we've expanded that even more today with different generations of families involved. So thank you for being here. We hope you are blessed by this weekend. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we pause amidst all else to give you your rightful place, to elevate you in our midst, to sing of your praise, to remind our hearts of gratitude, to hear your voice of challenge, to hear you speak. Father, may your voice be what speaks to us as we open your ancient words. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I had the opportunity to be able to participate in this community over the last five years, I got to be part of church plants, first in Vancouver, British Columbia, and then here in Sioux Center, Iowa for six years. And in each of those places, as I subscribe to a particular school of thought when it comes to preaching, that I don't simply want to respond to what's going on in the world around, but what you want to do is take six, 12, 24 months and lay out before the Lord where we hope to preach, where we hope to, to cover in His Word. And then following that, I was always amazed that when hard things would come up in culture or when a difficult conversation had to be had in church, it was as if God had already set the table and I felt like I had a freedom when everybody knew the schedule that I could preach with just maybe a little bit more authority or a little more freedom because everybody knew that this wasn't being made up just to react to whatever was taking place. I went back through a spreadsheet this week reflecting on all the opportunities that there have been and I realized that I'm almost up to sermon number 600, but I have never preached on the book of Nahum. This semester we're going through a series of messages called The Prophets Still Speak and we're opening up these minor prophets and walking through them week after week and as luck would have it, Defender Days falls on Nahum. I'm not sure if you've spent a lot of time in this book before. It's not the rosiest of passages in Scripture. Let's say you woke up this morning and you kind of decided to do the spin the wheel devotions thing and your Bible plopped open to the book of Nahum and your finger went like that and you just decided to grab little snippets that were going to give meaning to your day. Like this one from Nahum chapter 3. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Go, Dort, go. <laughs> but all Scripture is God-breathed. Everything has something to teach us. And if we follow these disciplines and work our way through the Bible, we find that God's Word still speaks powerfully for us today. And the book of Nahum, perhaps, is one that we should not be skipping over for. It still speaks, and it still speaks loudly. And I want to look at that message with you this morning. 
There's these themes that keep coming up within all of the prophets. There are three that we want to pay particular attention to this morning. Number one, that you've got to read the prophets, that this genre of Scripture belongs in the whole of Scripture. That you can't take little snippets out. You can't take a book and give it to somebody, tear out the front, tear out the back, and then say, here, have this story. I'm sure it will make great sense to you. It won't work. It has to be placed within the big, broader context. Every Dort student ever wanted to do that to a textbook just had a little, <laughs> little excitement inside them in that moment, didn't you? But it has to find its place within the broader canon. This is why we talk about, you know, a, a, a historical redemptive approach to Scripture. And perhaps the prophets, more than any other genre, require this of us because they hearken back to the law and they call back to a righteousness. And yet they point forward to what things will look like if we will but fall in line with what it is that God is asking of us in life. And Nahum is no different. This entire book of Nahum is an oracle against the city of Nineveh. What a strange book. We know very little of Nahum other than his name that happens in the first verse. He's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Perhaps the city of Capernaum later on is named after him, the city of Nahum. Maybe not. Maybe it was from somebody else. But he participates in this weird dialogue that happens in the Minor Prophets. There are two books given entirely to the fortunes and the destiny of the city of Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire. Ever done on that, that ever dawned on you before? What an odd thing. The entire book of Jonah and the entire book of Nahum speak specifically to Nineveh. Part of this, of course, tells us of God's interest in the grand scope of things. The problem is when you get to the book of Nahum is that he gets to deliver the sermon that Jonah wanted to give. Jonah's so angry at God because he's got to talk about mercy and he shows up and he gives this eight-word sermon and the whole place turns upside down in repentance and, and, and they're all moved. And it's a different story. Nahum, of course, is so angry at the Assyrians. The majority of scholars believe that Nahum was actually writing from a place. Elkosh, Elkush, a place 50 miles north of the modern-day city of Mosul, the ancient-day city of Nineveh. He would have been one of the captives likely taken in the Assyrian exile of the northern kingdom. He has watched his leaders become decimated, dragged off in front of the world in shame and in scorn. And here he sits. He has seen all the atrocities that this empire has committed against all sorts of humanity in different nations. And now he is angry, righteously angry, and he sits down and writes, not like the other prophets in sort of these collections of sayings, but a well-crafted, brilliant literary composition written down from a vision that he has seen. Scholars contend that at the end of the day, Nahum is actually the most literarily brilliant of all the minor prophets. Its composition is majestic. Its poetry unmatched in the other prophets. Its beautiful literature saying scary things. Ironically, the name Nahum means compassion or comfort. Really? These two books, Jonah, Nahum, they're about the same length, they're all to the same city, and strangely enough, also the only two books in the entire Bible that end with a question. There's similarities that's taking place between these two. 
But in Jonah, the message of God's unmerited mercy stands forefront. And now in Nahum, it's just all his justice and his judgment. So what's happened in the hundred-year span between the writing of these two books? Apparently, Nineveh repented and responded to Jonah's preaching. But it didn't last through the generations, and they've taken advantage of their place and who they are. At this point in time, by the time the book of Nahum gets written, Assyria is the, the only superpower in the world. They have conquered Thebes, and Egypt has fallen. They have subjugated Babylon, and now they are in within the empire. Assyria is massive. Esar Haddon, at this point in time, has built the largest empire the world has seen, and it is powerful, and nobody would dare to question its ability to keep going and its power. And here writes Nahum, just scathing commentary on the king and this kingdom. Esar Haddon has two sons, Asurbanipal and Samusumukin. Asurbanipal becomes the leader of Assyria, Samusumukin the vassal state of Babylon. And right after this book gets written, the two of these brothers and their kingdoms begin to go to war before Babylon joins with the Medes and the Assyrian Empire finally falls in 612. Nahum is a prophet speaking the truth according to the definition of Moses because the things that he talks about in this book come to pass. And Nineveh falls, and Assyria is judged, and it all happens. And Nahum, as a captive of this imprisonment, has seen it all firsthand. We have to read this within the whole to make sense of it. The other major theme that comes up in here again, over and over again through the prophets, is this theme of justice. Nahum is crying out for all the things that have been done, and part of our hearts relates to this part of the message of the book. 27 million people in the world enslaved today. More people in human trafficking and slavery than ever before, ever before in history. How many of us have not seen or been touched by some sort of marital breakdown and divorce in our own families, among our friends, and seen the pain that it has caused, or seen a child left orphaned, or someone who lost a family member that died too soon? We see cancer wreak havoc through so many places within our midst and in our communities. You watch the news and you see war after war taking place on all these different continents of the globe and so much uncertainty. And now we face physical threats and diseases and paranoia and fears all over the place. And there are so many people that continue to profit at the expense of others. And there's a part of the justice inside of us that gets all worked up just like the prophets and says, how long, Lord, will we continue to watch this sort of suffering take place? And we long for the coming of the new kingdom in its entirety. And the final renewal of all things. And that's the cry of justice that's taking place within the prophets. That God's perfection will not tolerate evil forever. And this is the cry in Nahum too. He's seen this. God, why have these people who've done such horrible things to others, to myself and to our family, as Nahum writes this, why do you let this go? Why do you let this happen? Watch the news and I defy you to ask yourself the same question. Why? And we long for justice, and we long for a God of justice. The theme of justice gets developed often throughout the minor prophets of Yahweh as the divine warrior, the one who will come and vindicate Israel and judge its enemies. 
The problem is, is that when Jesus finally does come, his warfare and his act as divine warrior is not what anybody anticipated, not even John the Baptist. He seems confused as Jesus' ministry progresses and he becomes imprisoned. He was expecting the divine warrior that they had seen in the Old Testament, the one who, 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 who was able to subdue the Edomites and the Assyrians and, and, and raise Israel back to a place of prominence, maybe even a superpower status once again like under David. John the Baptist sends emissaries to Jesus to ask him as he's in prison, well, are you the one we were waiting for or should it be someone else? Because we're not seeing this divine warrior that we all long for. Except Jesus shows us that he demonstrates a different kind of warfare, one that is much more intimate and much more intense than just simply naming the enemy off as the Edomites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Instead, when Jesus comes, he doesn't deal with the symptoms of evil in the world. He deals with its heart. It's so easy for us when we see evil manifest itself to create a differentiation between us and others in the world, and the words them and they begin to come off of our mouth very quickly. Jesus never articulated another nation of enemies when he walked. Jesus never talked about the Romans needing to be taken care of in order for Israel to find their identity and their place again. He reconstitutes a new Israel and a new form of warfare, one that was not anticipated, but one that is much more significant. He doesn't just touch on the symptoms, he goes to the heart of the matter. And then he rips the heart of evil out. And in the last book of the Bible, we see pictures of him as he stands. I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. He has completed the final victory in all of that. We long for justice. We see it all around us. And books like Nahum remind us that God will not tolerate evil in this world. And for any of us who have suffered under it, we will see a beautiful, perfect, and renewed creation. Every tear will be wiped from every eye, and we get to proceed with the end in sight and not just the pieces. And that is our story. But there's another problem with this story, and this is the last thing that the prophets often do, is they flip it on us. When Nathan comes before David and David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and he tells him the story about this man who has taken something for himself and left the poor man without nothing and David's getting all riled up inside and then Nathan turns on him and says, you are the man, David. You're the one I'm talking about. And the prophets have a way of doing this again and again. We saw this when we studied the book of Amos as it starts off and Amos is railing against the other nations around Israel and you can hear their collective heart being, give it to him, Amos, give it to him. And then he finally turns the tables and says the most scathing commentary and remarks reserved for Israel in the same way that Jesus would do it for those who would presume upon his grace. The harshest critique and the strongest language. And what we see within the prophets, we saw this earlier on in the minor prophets, when Israel was at its height and its political might and prominence in the world, that's when the critique, that's when the prophets speak the loudest to them. Here again, Assyria is at the pinnacle, the apex of its rule in all of history, the strongest it has ever been. And again, the critique comes so scathing and so hard because pride always comes before the fall. I don't know if any of you have been following, following the news lately of this sort of tragic story 
in this church of Mars Hill in Seattle, and Pastor Mark Driscoll. John Ortberg wrote an article yesterday. It was released on Leadership Journal. He writes this. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. He writes in his passage, quoting C.S. Lewis. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. But see, here's the problem with pride. It always comes in the form of a slippery slope. Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, by the time I go to sleep tonight, I will believe that I am better than everybody else. But pride ekes its way in. And for all the evangelical response that we've given over time to health and wealth, prosperity, gospels, and preaching, for all that we mock it and critique it and can call it out, at the end of the day, we still want to believe that we sit in one of the most privileged places in the world because somehow somebody likes us a little bit more or somehow we're a little bit deserving. We want to believe that. We don't want to believe that we've been given things for a burden of responsibility to share. Listen carefully when the prophets speak to Israel at its height of its power, to Assyria at the height of its power, to Babylon at the height of its power. The warnings always come at the place where pride has the greatest opportunity to slip in. It is so easy for us in the places of great affluence, and make no mistake, we are some of the most affluent people on the planet. We have some of the most amazing things given to us. When I read the story of Nahum, I want to be Nahum. I want to poke at enemies on the other side of the world. I want to find the modern parallel. I want to look at this passage and say, he's writing the exact place where ISIS is today. Those guys, give it to them, Lord. But the reality is, the people most closely associated with who Nahum is actually railing on this passage probably isn't those at the bottom, the political or the military totem pole. But more often than not, it's those who hold all the chips at the table. Because the things that he talks about in here and the warnings against pride, when you begin to associate yourself or want to believe a little bit that somehow that raise in your paycheck was, identifies me a little bit more. Or my house or my car or the clothes that I wear. We get confused. Assyria wanted to identify itself by its military might, its nobles, its rulers. And all of its wealth. It had stockpiled through all of its conquering the biggest amount of loot and wealth the world had ever seen. And as Nahum closes his book, these are the words that he offers them. All your fortresses are like fig trees. With their first ripe fruit, when they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They are all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defenses. Work the clay. Tread the mortar. Repair the brickwork. There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. They will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply the grasshoppers. Multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars in the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts, your officials like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls in a cold day, but when the sun appears, they flew away, and no one knows where. 
king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest, your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you, your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Assyria fell down the slippery slope of pride after being broken with Jonah's message. And we must remember too and be willing to be convicted by the parts of Scripture that get held up before us that remind us of who we are and what it is that we have. We may not associate our identity with our wealth. We may not associate our peace that somehow we have created this through the strength of our own arms and our own might. We have been blessed by the Lord in order to be a blessing. We have been blessed by the Lord in order to be servants of others. Make no mistake, all the opportunities that you and I are being given in life are to be shared with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and who hunger and thirst for so many of the things that we have the opportunity to provide. Never let our identity be defined by the things that we have or a piece of security that we believe we have created. We have been given these things as stewards and ambassadors, and on top of this as a community, an academic community, we've been given some of the greatest opportunities. And you will stand in amazing places, and you will go forth into this world with amazing opportunities because the education that is yours and the privileges and opportunities that are yours. But pride happens when we elevate ourselves just a little bit above Christ. When we do that, we go alone. And we go alone down a slippery slope. That's what the prophets say. But when we find a place to be broken again and again in our own humility and elevate Christ, then he takes us with him. May you be broken in humility over and over again. May we find our place in humility before the word. May we not pick and choose the things we want and the things we don't. May we understand who our parallels are when the prophets speak. May we be convicted and cut to the heart and realize that we have been given so much in order to be a blessing. May we be humble. May we always elevate Christ. May he find his place here and in the throne room of your heart and in your dreams of the future. Let him have it all. And then, by his incredible selfless heart, he shares these things back with us and he lifts us up. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your words when they comfort us in our deepest sorrow and when they challenge us in our complacency. Father, we trust you to be Lord over all, and we know that you are. We remind ourselves again that amidst all the injustices in the world, that you are still just, and that you are making things new, and you're inviting us to be part of this with you. Father God, thank you for your, the ways you've spoken through history and for prophets like Nahum. May we be convicted by those two. May we be shaped by them. And may we lift you up. Father, to you be the glory in everything that we do. Help us to find our identity and our redemption in you and not in anything that we've created. May you find glory here and in us. Amen. Will please rise and receive a parting blessing into the rest of the day?
community in and around Dort College, children of the great and living God, sons and daughters of the one who calls you his. Go in this day, go in this weekend, go in this time, go to every place that God will call you in humility. May you raise his name high. May you raise his name high. Amen.